This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. And welcome to Women Who Travel, a podcast from Connie Nast Traveler. I'm Meredith Carey, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Sally Arakoglu. Hello. Today, we're joined by Jen Gotch, founder and chief creative officer of Bando, and author of The Upside of Being Down, How Mental Health Struggles Led to My Greatest Successes in Work and Life, out March 24th. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course, that was so... I don't think I breathed. Was, yeah, <laughs> that was impressive. And also, I will say, there's there have been times where I've been asked to read the entire title, including subtitle, and I was just like, I can't. I can't. It's so much. It's just the upside of being down. But I watched you go through it quite gracefully. I was like, oh man, she's going for the whole thing. <laughs> well, speaking of this book, what made you feel like it was the right time to write this book? Mm, um, that is a good question. So my editor actually approached me in 2015. And I that was not the right time. I felt like I was too consumed with Bandau. Um, and then we spoke several times over the next three years. And then I think it was late 2018, we had been back in touch. And I was like starting to feel like maybe this would be the time. And um, my friend Busy was writing a book. And we were talking one day and she was like, my editor, Lauren. She just said, like, my editor, Lauren. I was like, Lauren Spiegel? And she's like, yes. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's the editor that wants me. I was like, I think it's time. Like, it felt like kismet. So, um so I said yes, and I feel like I'm I'm very big in trusting timing and like leaning in when you get a sign like that. And if you're not feeling that way, not even though it felt like it would be cool to write a book in 2015, like I'm really glad. So that is the long answer to the short question. You know, I think this is something people often think about because writing a book is such a massive undertaking. Mm. When you sat in front of that blank computer screen for the first time how did you take the steps to start to work through everything you wanted to write about I mean I I was in front of a blank computer screen for many months in fact we shot the book cover I had not written a word and I was like is this a good idea (laughs) um so I actually read a lot about writing and tried a bunch of different, you know, tried the schedule thing, tried to force yourself, you know, write whatever, even if it's not great. I mean, there was an outline. So I sort of went in knowing what I was to write about. But I think one day I I just my brain is one of those like it's like a rebellious teenager. And it just it's like 
I'll write when I want to write. I'll give you that information whenever I'm ready, even though I was at the keyboard. And then one day it just sort of started and kind of went from there. And honestly, it was like these little spurts. I was not the type of author that was from 9 to 12 every day, diligently writing. So it was a painful process. (laughs) Well, I feel like a lot of the things that you're writing about are not easy Mm -hmm. things to write about. Um, Because one of the, the first stories that you write about is your first travel-related anxiety attack Mm. Um, in an airport. What was that panic attack like? And, you know, going forward, how has travel anxiety really affected you in the years Mm. since? I mean, decades and decades of travel anxiety. I feel like I'm much better now. But, you know, that was probably early 90s when that happened. And so there was no access to information. I mean, there was not really an internet yet. So so I don't think I knew what was happening. I, and it all, um, I mean, anyone that struggles with anxiety knows that like those fears feel very real and very legitimate. So I, you know, on a cellular level felt like I was going to die if I get on this airplane. <laughs> um, so I was just consumed with that thinking like so much so that my parents took me home and then I ended up driving back to college. And then, you know, over the next 20 years, um, you know, I've had, I mean, I moved across the country from my family, so I would travel home. Then I was a freelance stylist, traveled a lot, and the, the anxiety sort of evolved. Like for a long time, I just was scared to get on a plane. I was certain that it was going down. And I ran into a friend at the Chicago airport. She saw that I was like, about to get about to get on my last flight ever and you know I said it to her and she's like do you know how much more dangerous it is driving in LA than getting on this plane and I was like man I never thought about it like that and I'm one like if you can give me a fact I can shift my thinking so um so then I was totally cool on the airplane and my anxiety shifted to (laughs) everything that it takes from booking a ticket like am I picking the right one to what time am I calling a car to packing to am I getting to the gate? Am I getting through security? What's going to happen if I take my shoes off? What's going to happen when I get on the plane? Is the overhead bin going to be full? Like it just was really, really uncomfortable. I mean, I still traveled. I know a lot of people struggle with travel anxiety and actually miss vacations and lose jobs. And so I was very like determined to work through it but I mean I had a lot of Xanax (laughs) during that time and then I sort of just made a conscious effort probably a year and a half two years ago that I wanted to relieve myself of this thinking because I had sort of come to understand like how much our minds and our egos are actually lying to us all the time and that I could just thank my thoughts for being there but that I did not need them (laughs) and I was not in any danger um And so that helped me a lot. I mean, I still had some anxiety traveling here, obviously, because there's a pandemic. (laughs) And, you know, and that was just creating a lot of like anxiety in general, just being at the airport, you could just feel it. But I feel like I'm 85% better. So you were talking about you know, thanking your thoughts and saying, Mm. okay, cool. Thanks for being here. Now get out. Um, (laughs) What other things have helped you keep that in check? You know, you do have to travel so much and you're Mm -hmm. coming up on a really big book tour and a lot of more travel. (laughs) Like how do you prep so that you feel more in control now? Yeah. I think um, packing in advance really helps. 
you know, sort of understanding what are the things that can trigger anxiety for me just generally and like 24 hours out just avoiding anything like not having too much caffeine, not like broaching any difficult conversations, <laughs> packing so I feel like I'm prepared. I mean, I used to want to weigh my luggage before I went, but I've, I've let go of some of that stuff. I think one of the big keys for me was just like leaving really early for the airport because I'm actually very comfortable to just sit at the gate. Like I can see the gate. I feel great. So well, that's like a little poem. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a start of a rap song <laughs> about travel anxiety. I'll get back to you guys about that. Um, so yeah, I think it's just like being aware of those things and then honoring that because then sometimes it's like, do I want to go two hours early to the airport? And I just, I just feel a lot better. And then also um, TSA pre-check like really changed a lot of my experience. So those are the things. So it sounds as a lot of it is is knowing yourself yes. and being able to kind of be one step ahead of yourself. Yes, yes. Before you get to the airport. Yes. <laughs> beyond that, obviously, you're also planning trips that are both for work and also a vacations. Mm-hmm. What sorts of vacations do you take to help assuage that anxiety? Mm-hmm. I- you know, I, I feel like I've, it's funny, um, it's funny to be on a travel podcast and say, I feel like I don't consider vacations that often. Most of my travel outside of work is to go home to visit my family in Florida, which is clearly a vacation, but because you're visiting family, it's like, how do I identify this trip? <laughs> because emotionally, there may be times where it's not a vacation. That's really my backup. You know, I always know that if I need to schedule a trip there, it's most likely going to be sunny for part of the time. I can dip myself in the ocean because I can't really do that in California because it's very cold in that ocean. So yeah, I think that's the only thing. I think probably because travel has been such a trigger for me for so long, the idea of imposing that on myself to go somewhere, (laughs) you know, so I think it's um, also got a house in the desert and so that's a two hour drive. Where um, in the desert? In Joshua Tree. So, um, yeah, it's like amazing. So I guess that's sort of like, I mean, it's a getaway. I guess I don't, I feel like vacations involve like packing a suitcase and boarding something. I feel like tie, using time off for yourself yeah. is in and of itself a vacation. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. I feel like, Jen, you're not the first person to say this, where, I, you know, you'll be like, you know, where do you travel for vacation? And they're like, oh, well, I don't actually really travel, but then I'm gone 10 months of the year for work. And I'm like, so you travel all the time. (laughs) And I think people kind of like make these rules for like what a vacation is is and isn't. No, certainly. Well, um, we talk at Bando about mental vacations. So, I mean, if we're going to speak in those terms, I take a lot of vacations. Just most of them are like in my car or on my couch or in my bed. (laughs) but certainly feels like a vacation. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake at The New Yorker, to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. 
because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. We've talked a lot on this podcast and um, between each other um, about how important it is to and healthy it is to like actually take all of your days, even if you're not yes. going anywhere. Why do you or do you take mm-hmm. all of your vacation mm-hmm. days or your time off? Um, so I'm in a unique situation where I still haven't signed the employee handbook at Bando. Uh, so I don't know that I necessarily have. Day- I don't think anyone keeps track of me. And also just to reiterate, like the not vacation thing is really not because I'm like, I have to work all the time. It just like for some reason that never stuck in. But for many years, I didn't take any time like for anything other than work. So like the idea of any kind of a vacation was just off the table for me. So I I feel like and I think this is a, a huge symptom of business people, really anyone who takes their career seriously, that um, it's almost like an impediment to work to take a vacation or, um, well, if I do that, then I won't get this done or this, you know, I feel like everyone feels kind of indispensable at work, which I mean, in lots of ways, you know, to the 85% you are, but like everyone should be able to take that. But I think like really what I ended up realizing was it was making me very sick and very like mentally and emotionally unwell to like never unplug because there were times where I was taking a quote unquote vacation like to my parents house but I was in front of the computer the whole time and so I think that um, I agree it is the most important thing I really went from as a boss like being like please don't ever leave to now I'm like oh my gosh go have so much fun don't look at your emails I'm not going to email you you know um, so I feel like everyone's sort of feeling that that is not an indulgence is actually like a necessity to stay productive and healthy. You know, you mentioned there was a time where as a boss, you didn't necessarily see the the value in both yourself and your employees taking those days. What was the turning point? What kind of shifted that thinking? Um, I think it's like a lot of what I was just saying that I started to see for, I mean, first for myself, what that was doing to me and and like certainly it's one thing when something's happening to you but the thought of it hurting something someone else almost strangely takes priority which is a backwards way that we all feel but and then I think a lot of it was just this general fear of missing out on something or not getting the work done or that without the team assembled um, I mean what if they never come back like there was just so much fear fear around the early days of Bando. Not in a way that was like palpable, but it was just very low lying. And so I think I just 
the lack of control with like not having the team set and maybe missing something was just too scary for me. I mean, now I'm completely on the other side of that because I dipped my toes in to that water to see like, what does it feel like? Do the walls come crumbling down? Nope. Nothing's ever happened. <laughs> like it's always been fine. So you talked about that trip home um, that was like really stuck with you that you ended up writing about in the book about busyness um, and your dad coming in and trying to talk to you and not, you not being able to focus and him being like, you're on vacation. What yeah. are you doing still yeah. being in front of the computer? Um, and how busyness is this like kind of facade that impedes on personal time and relationships. You know, we kind of touched on this earlier, but how has your relationship with busyness kind of changed even on those vacations home? Sure. Um, well, my when I take vacations now, my parents are like, do you do you have any you don't have anything to do? <laughs> like, I feel like they were suffering from some sort of PTSD for many years. I mean, now they're sort of like, yeah, we get it. You don't work on vacation. But again, it all s sort of circles to the fact that it's so detrimental that it actually works in the reverse of what we think, like, because I think we're equating busyness to productivity and success. And the reality is it, it could be the thing getting in your way. It's just that everyone has sort of gotten on board with this idea that like the more powerful and the more successful you are has to equal that you're that busy. And like I was, I've been saying a lot, I realize that people are always start sentences to me. I know you're really busy, but, and I'm just like, I'm actually not like I'm actively not busy now because I didn't find that big of a difference in my productivity if I was like having healthy boundaries with workload versus not and I'm much happier this way. <laughs> in a previous episode, we talked to Lisa Lutoff Perlo, who's the CEO of Celebrity Cruises, and mm -hmm. she brought up this point about how women need to stop worrying about trying to do everything. Yes. And I think we feel a pressure. We feel that to prove that we're worthy of the role that we're in, we have to show that we're working as hard as we possibly can mm. all the time. Would you agree that women in particular have a problem with busyness? I mean, I primarily work with women, so I, it, I feel like it may be something that also carries over to men, but I almost think that it, at least for me, my personal thing is I, I'm not trying to prove anything to anyone. Like, it's just the way I operate. It has more to do with, like, my own holding myself to a ridiculous standard of perfection or something. But I also think that women sort of have the ability to do a lot of things at once in a way that maybe men are wired different. I mean, just reading um, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, there's actually like scientific evidence that like we are here to serve different roles. And I think like here we are with the opportunity and the ability. And I mean, like most of the women I work with just have an incredible work ethic and are like excited about what they're doing. So I feel like my lens on it is a little bit different, but completely agree that we're all doing too much <laughs> collectively when you talk about taking those kind of like mental vacations even if it's in your car mm -hmm. in your bed mm -hmm. what does that look like when you're taking kind of like these mini breaks mm -hmm. from your day-to-day -day life I mean unplugging um, which is obviously a common thing that people are trying to do now um, I do a lot of breathing meditating and it's not like I go in for three hours. You know, I think it's just like 
remaining very aware of what my intention is in the moment that it's not like, well, I'm going to go numb myself with like TV and food, you know, like this is like a time that I'm actually using to recharge or like I was use I use the desert for that now because, um, energetically it's just different there. So it's like very relaxed, just the air is more relaxing. And I think like for me, the car, the car driving is like very relaxing for me. And I feel like our brains do like parts of our brains shut down to just like focus on the driving. And then it just like allows all of these other more interesting thoughts to bubble up. And all of that feels like what I would want to be doing on a vacation as well. Like, so I'm not poolside with a drink, but like, I'm sort of just trying to get my like mental, emotional, physical state to mirror that. Driving is one of the biggest things that I miss living in New York because of the time it gave me every single day to be on my own. Um, And I was doing an interview with Sophia Rowe a couple of weeks ago, and she was just took this three week road trip through Mexico by herself. And she's like, I've never had as many sad cries and happy cries Mm -hmm. in the car alone. And like, opened the door and been like, okay, cool. Like we have done this Mm -hmm. and now I'm moving on to my next activity. She said it was just like the driving part of it was as important as the trip itself. Yeah. I, I completely agree. I mean, as someone who lives in LA and like have had up to like hour and a half, two hour commutes for years at a time, it's, um, and I don't believe in resisting stuff like that because it's like, well, this is your deal. I, I feel like there's just like notes and notes and emails and voice memos from like what, what was coming through during that time. So, um, I'm sorry you don't get to drive. I know, well, that's but also I'm, cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's pros and cons. It means I have to prioritize uh, road trips whenever I'm traveling mm. on my own. Yeah, that's fun. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Um, I think one problem that I have, and I know I think a lot of people do, is that when it comes to taking sort of a personal day and just having like a sort of mental health break often you don't decide to do it until Mm -hmm. you really need it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um what's your advice for sort of preempting that and Mm -hmm. actually kind of breaking into this kind of mindset of being like i am going to book this really far in advance Mm -hmm. and i know i'll need it when i get there Mm -hmm. i think even if you can get ahead of it for a week but what i have found just in general for like personal and professional life like building self-awareness and emotional intelligence has allowed me to do do everything that I've been articulating to you to, to sort of like have those measures to protect myself. So I think, um, and also for me, because I've struggled with mental illness for so long that like you really do start to take it quite seriously if you want to be up and operational and succeeding. And so, um, so I feel like getting in touch with your thoughts and your body and then also paying attention to those patterns. So maybe like when you do have that emergency mental health day, like sort of look back and be like, what led to this? Is it like, is it a full moon? Did I just have like two weeks full of meetings? Was there a big project? Do you know, like, is it seasonal? Like, I feel like there's so much information um, 
in retrospect as well that you could just rather than feeling bad about it just apply it to the next time but I think also just like at 48 I've had a lot of experience with all of it so I'm just like more practiced on figuring it out but I think just even just stating to yourself that you're going to make it a priority changes your relationship to it immediately like I think you find that you're actually you know more than you think you know about yourself um, other than just talking to yourself, you've talked to a lot of other people, <laughs> um, be it on Instagram or on your podcast or through the necklaces at Bando, mm. um, about mental health and mental health struggles. Why has it been so important for you to talk about your travel anxiety at the airport, mm-hmm. um, your ADD, mm-hmm. everything else that comes with being you mm-hmm. um, so publicly? Mm-hmm. I've... I've never had that filter. (laughs) I didn't know that I would find a way to use that to such an advantage, but I don't think it started out intentionally. And I feel like when I look back, I was looking back the other day, I'm like, when was I starting doing it? Because I always thought it was like a few years, but it was actually like 2014 or 2013 that I was like starting to like talk about those things openly. And I think like, at first it was really for me, you know, to just sort of get it out. And because I didn't have that barrier of like feeling shame or embarrassment, it just like for some reason made the most sense. I mean, it to most people that doesn't make any sense, but it made a lot of sense to me. And then I think over the years, the feedback that I have received, um, I mean, to say that it feels like a responsibility makes it seem negative, but like, I understood more that like what what I'm able to do is not a common thing and it is something that makes a lot of people uncomfortable to put themselves out there in that way and to know that like if I'm just myself talking about the things that I'm happy to talk about and it's helping people learn about themselves or feel less alone or you know it's like how would you not do that and I think like ultimately that's part of my purpose and so I think like anyone who has the luxury of like plugging into their true purpose it's like there aren't decisions that you're making like you're just doing it (laughs) how do you feel like since you started talking about it on Instagram and elsewhere the conversation around mental health has changed Mm. you know I I exist in a bubble I'm becoming more and more clear of that so I feel like the conversations in my world are very open. Like, I feel like a lot of the stigma has been removed. We work with Bring Change to Mind, who's a a nonprofit that deals with like destigmatizing mental health issues. And I did their student summit. And so it was like high school students and the way that they were able to speak to me, even on a microphone in front of hundreds of other peers about their mental illness was baffling but then I'll talk to someone who's just works at a corporate job or whatever and and it's like oh it still holds all of those things so I think like if you're around me personally or like in my orbit or have followed me or I mean people stop me on the street and tell me very personal things like right out of the gate and I like I that does not feel like an imposition so if so if I didn't know anything about the world that lies outside of like what I can see I would be like it's great everyone's fine with it now (laughs) we're all talking about our anxieties openly and there's nothing to be ashamed of and we all feel that way Um, but when I look like outside of that I, I mean I think there's still a lot of work to be done when it comes to talking about it and having these conversations that 
also I imagine it extends to the people who you are traveling with mm. um, <laughs> and um, we recently had a question for our advice columnist Megan Spirell from a woman who was traveling for her sister's 40th birthday and her sister has social anxiety and a deep fear of flying and this woman wanted to know how she could help her sister enjoy herself on this sort of once of a lifetime trip mm-hmm. what's your advice for those who are traveling with someone who's suffering mm-hmm. from travel anxiety and can help them and provide the support that they need. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, I would say, honestly, if someone is in an airport having an anxiety attack and like this is how they operate for that time, there's there's actually not that much you can do to like alleviate that. Like sometimes you have to just like get through the whole thing. But I have found the more stable that you can feel and like maybe less about trying to actually fix something and just being there for them and sort of just letting them know that and not needing to like really dig in and ask questions and certainly not I mean I've definitely traveled with people that are like what's wrong with you it's fine and I'm like well that I mean it makes me a little mad so I forgot about my anxiety for a second so I guess you could do that <laughs> you could just like punch them in the face and then they would stop having anxiety um, but I find like with any sort of like mental health issue and you you have a loved one or someone that struggles like if you can be informed, I think it just puts it in a different context where you have this understanding that it's not just the symptoms, that there's so much behind the symptoms. And so I do think it's not necessarily about like serving up solutions, but just like not being pulled into the reaction. You know, like my ex-husband was as anxious a traveler as I was, and that didn't always pan out for us although sometimes it just made one of us step up and be like I'm going to be the one that makes this okay but I think um, when I travel with people that are just like cool with whatever that helps me I mean now I just try and be that person for myself because then I always have her (laughs) (laughs) can always rely on yourself yes I most of the time (laughs) unless I'm really (laughs) drunk and then I can't rely on myself (laughs) Um, are there any women in particular I know that Lolly and I both have like specific women Mm. that we love to travel with is there anyone Mm. um, that you really like driving with or flying with that you feel like is your is your travel person that is so interesting well I, I it's it's not a woman like I travel a lot with my brother so um and he's great because he's as chill as chill can be but I have to say I travel by myself more I can't even think, I mean, I feel like Busy is probably the last person I traveled with and that was fun because we were going somewhere for her birthday and just drank champagne and she's like, she's very chill too. I mean, she she doesn't, an airport, the airport's not a trigger for her. So yeah, I don't, I think I'm still the woman <laughs> that I like to travel with the most. I love that. <laughs> I want that on a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> hey, let's write that down because we need more. We're running out of phrases. I'm like, we can't, can we slow down here? <laughs> I will buy it. Yeah. Okay. Down is your first customer. <laughs> Usually if I tell them there's one sale, they will go into printing thousands. <laughs> so check band out yeah. um, for that t-shirt soon. Yes. Um, that feels like a really good place to wrap up um, if people want to buy your book which mm. I am not going to re-say the full title but <laughs> no, you can find please. it at the upside of being down where can they buy it and when uh, so it comes out March 24th 
I'm not sure when we're going live with this podcast, but you can obviously order it prior to that. Uh, I would say put the title into your search engine and see what comes up. The other thing I would say is there's a little place called Amazon that is absolutely selling it, but it's being sold in lots of places, both digitally in real life and on bando.com starting April. So perfect. And where yeah. can people follow you on the internet? Mm. I'm just at Jen Gotch on Instagram. That's probably the best. Although I'm trying to figure out TikTok. I think for, I know, <laughs> I know, uh, that's the best place to find me for now. <laughs> You can find me at Lale Hannah, and I just wanted to make a quick Women Who Travel plug. This March, we are launching a brand new column called I Deserve This, mm. which will be exploring all the conf conflicting emotions around spending time and money on yourself. And part of the column is that we want to hear from you. So if you have a story you want to share about traveling for yourself or with yourself, <laughs> um, tag us on Instagram or email us at womenwhotravel at cntraveler.com. Uh, we can't wait to hear your stories. And you can find me at Oh Hey There Mare and you can find Women Who Travel stories at womenwhotravel.com and you can find a story that we did last year with Jen at cntraveler.com. I will make sure to link it in the show notes. We will talk to you next week. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.